Hey, Three Crosses family. Welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. Today, we got a very special guest. We are going over the song by Adele titled, Make You Feel My Love. We're going to be in Mark chapter five today. And so with that, let's go deeper. Well, we're super excited today for Patty Crone to join us in the podcast studio. Patty, welcome for the first time in your first week to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I've been listening for a while, so this is this is a treat to be here. And it's encouraging to know that in your process of learning about Three Crosses, you found our podcast, which is awesome. And now you're here on the podcast. We so. did. It was a big part of our decision making. <laughs> Mine and my husband's, he ran a marathon, half marathon, not that long ago. And he listened to the last year, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. We're coming up on a year, which is awesome. And, you know, I know the listeners out there um, are just meeting you for the first time. Uh, saw you on Sunday, gave a great message. I'm wondering, you told us a little bit about yourself. I'm wondering, how did you end up at Three Crosses? What was that journey like? All right. Well, without going too far back, um, a mutual friend of Pastor Danny and I reached out um, over about a year ago about this church, she said, that's in the East Bay doing really great things. And she knew I was in the Central Valley, but wondered if I would be interested in hearing more and maybe just entering into a conversation. But I had just started a new job as a counselor uh, working with missionaries, and but I did commit to pray. It took about eight months of prayer before I reached back out to Taylor mm -hmm. to see if Three Crosses still wanted to talk. And in that time, God had been stirring in both mine and my husband's heart about what it would be like to surrender this next chapter of our lives to the unexpected. Mm -hmm. And so the conversations began last December, which is open hands. We kind of call it our pillar of cloud by day and fire by night journey. <laughs> and it eventually the cloud landed on the three mm -hmm. crosses. And so we are excited to be part of what God is doing in the East Bay. Well, one of the good things about the Going Deeper podcast is people love those Old Testament imageries. So cool. Awesome. Pillar by pillar of cloud. By, by day, day and fire, fire by, by night. night just yep. guiding you through the unknown, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Well, let's dive in. I mean, Mark 5, uh, verse 21, we'll start there. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So you're a longtime listener of the podcast and you know, typically my first question is always about context. context. Yep. So. Help us set the scene here. We just talked last week about Matthew, who wrote the gospel, and now we are in another gospel called Mark. So who is Mark and how might understanding who he is understand what he's writing about, what this gospel is all about? And uh, interesting, verse 21 gives us these details of like Jesus crossing lakes and, you know, he's gathered around a large crowd. Is there something going on here that uh, we should know about? Because I know we're jumping right into five or chapter five in the middle of 20 mm -hmm. or in the middle of verse 21. So, uh, yeah, just help us set the scene for this passage here. Yeah. The earliest um, sources identify Mark as a secretary or translator for Peter. So it's considered Peter's gospel. As one of Jesus's first 12, Mark is believed to have written all that Peter remembered. And the Gospel of Mark mentions Peter more than any other gospel. Peter's always present, if you notice. Um, by many, the book of Mark is considered, again, to be Peter's eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. Mm. And also is the earliest uh, written gospel. Mm. The Gospel of Mark is active. It's present tense. It's almost urgent. 
um, you'll notice it's shorter than the other gospels. Um, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. word immediately is throughout. Hmm. So from Mark 1, Jesus has broken into history quickly, reversing the curse of sin with the invasion of God's kingdom. So this speaks to the movements of Jesus and the importance of the growing crowds. He has an authority that is astonishing everyone, whether it's his teaching or healing diseases or casting out demons or forgiving sins. And so Mark 3, 7 gives us a hint about the crowd. Um, Mark writes that a crowd followed traveling Mm -hmm. great distances Mm -hmm. because they heard of what Jesus was doing. Yeah, I love the book of Mark. It's very fast-paced, you know, right from the beginning, like Mark 1-1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here we go. Here we right go. into it. And right I love, into it. Baptism, I love the, the speed wilderness. of it. I love mm-hmm. how he just I love how he's just continually progressing the story and it's Yeah, and that present tense is almost like it's asking us to respond and be mm-hmm. part of it. Like you mm-hmm. are part of this thing that is continuing as a reader. Yeah, I can imagine the crowd, you know, being a part of the crowd and following him and and seeing what's going on. I think the crowd becomes a uh, a key player in some of these uh, verses coming up. So we'll go right into verse 22 and all the way to 24. It says, Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And you can find these accounts also in Matthew 9, Luke 8. It's a similar story. Um, You know, in your sermon, I thought it was brilliant how you brought out the context of people like Jairus. Like, what did it mean to be a synagogue leader? Um, You know, what did it mean to have a little daughter who was dying and the implications of, you know, what it meant to be a young girl in that context and what they were expected to do? All these background things. And yet one of the things I was thinking about was... I found it interesting how you used the Jairus story as well as the story of the bleeding woman, which is coming up because in my experience, and this might just be me, I don't know if I'm crazy, maybe, I don't know, but it seems like the bleeding woman gets a lot more airtime mm-hmm. in the story because yeah, it's such does. a miraculous thing. But in each of these gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, and Mark, it's almost as if the story of Jairus acts as a... Uh, parenthesis, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. first and last kind of surrounding the mm-hmm. story of the bleeding woman. So I'm wondering when you look at it that way, is there something going on here that the authors of the gospel are trying to get across? Cause it's, mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible is so cool. There's so many unique things that they're doing, but I think they're doing things intentionally. So is there something that we're supposed to glean from just in the way that they present the story of Jairus first? Yeah, I, I think there is. There's um, those who study these things tell us that there's a device that Mark uses more than anyone, and it's called a sandwich. It's a Mark and sandwich, <laughs> and it's used like no less than six times in his gospel. Sometimes some people think it's up to nine, hmm. where he's intentionally um, highlighting comparison and contrast of two stories for a purpose. And so you can see it throughout. You see this contrast and this comparison. We've got a religious leader who's named. Um, And then we have an unclean outcast woman Hmm. who's unnamed. You see a difference in approach. Mm -hmm. Jairus falls on Jesus' feet, pleads him to come heal. She sneaks from behind, doesn't Mm want to be seen, doesn't want to be known. The crowd, um, the woman is likely in a desperate crowd. These people are following Jesus because they they want a touch. But the crowd at Jairus's house is likely elites mm. and the who's who. Um, and then you look at Jesus, and with one, he exposes the woman, um, but he 
with Jairus, he tells him to keep quiet. And then you have the comparisons of the 12 years. But I think one of the most significant pieces for me, and I would love to have Mark or Peter here tell me this is accurate, <laughs> but so who knows? But for me, what is most impactful is that both have a father. Mm-hmm. And one is Jairus, but this bleeding woman who has had no one to advocate for her, Jesus is saying, no, you do. Mm-hmm. You are a daughter. He calls her daughter. The father is advocating for you because we know that Jesus in his ministry said, I only do what the father tells me to do. So as Jairus was advocating for his daughter who was dying, the fa- our father, the heavenly father, was advocating for this bleeding woman. So I think this is, speaks to, to um, Mark's gospel and what we see in all four gospels of Jesus upsetting status quo mm-hmm. um, and his ongoing comprehensive picture of his ministry of the priorities of the kingdom. Kind of what Ryan talked about last week, just this, the Beatitudes, the Blesseds. This is this upside down kingdom where the marginalized are brought in. Um, and where everything is just, again, upside down. I think when you put it that way, looking at, or the gospel authors are calling us to compare and contrast. Uh, one of the things that you brought out was time. Mm-hmm. You know, one is healed immediately. The other yeah. one, it, it takes him a while. And you called mm-hmm. it chronic versus something that's like choking you immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the chronic example comes in the next few verses. We'll go all the way to verse 28. A large crowd followed, there's the crowd again, Mm -hmm. and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And so again, in your sermon, I thought it was brilliant how you brought out, you know, the different chronic nature of this disease, this um, uncleanliness that she would have adopted, this loneliness even in the community. And, uh, you know, as you drew out your Snow White analogy, she is in the coffin Mm -hmm. and uh, she comes to the end of herself and she risks it all to to approach Jesus and, uh, you know, some powerful imagery, but I think the one that people are going to walk away with the most in your message here is the one where you talked about your daughter. Mm. And I know this story resonates with you. Uh, You mentioned her a little bit and your journey. I was wondering if you could unpack um, just who your daughter is, how she's been inspirational Mm. to you. And, uh, you know, here we see this woman who's been going all over the place, all over doctors and, and trying everything possible. And yet she kept getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, what have you learned in your journey with Aubrey um, that feels like it resonates with you from this Mark 5 passage here? I can definitely resonate with the cures making you worse. Um, I had to realize that when Aubrey was diagnosed, I I had to recognize my own susceptibility to um, earthly answers and cures that are unhelpful sometimes and can even be harmful. So when suffering enclosed me, that sorrow, that lens through which I looked at life, um, my husband and I often talk about that our theology had to become our biography. Mm-hmm. And that was it, it. there was a struggle, at least for me, not so much him, to really have my belief become faith. I, I believed God was good. I believed he was sovereign. I believed he can heal. Mm-hmm. 
And yet um, I the faith I was putting in so many other uh, cures that were out there uh, was very susceptible. I was taken advantage of in many ways. And even as Aubrey ages, I'm challenged still by the reality that becoming mature in Christ is to become like a child. It's to turn to him first and not last. And turning to Jesus may include doctors, and it may include wise helpers, and it may include miraculous healings of physical ailments. But faith and hope has to be placed in him, his goodness, his love, his wisdom, his timing for the outcome. And how this kind of played out for me, the first five years of her diagnosis were were really dark for me. And um, I was susceptible to a lot of uh, some some false theologies mm-hmm. that if I just had enough faith, mm-hmm. she could be healed. Mm-hmm. And, and then that carried the shame that somehow I... Did I not really have faith in Jesus? Hmm. And so those kinds of things were the kinds of cures that actually made me worse. Um, so my susceptibility to the cures that are unhelpful at best and harmful at worst, I, I didn't realize how susceptible I was. I thought I was a person of, of, of faith. And yet when my world came crushing down, I wanted out so badly of being a mom of a special needs child. There was shame involved for me, which is another story. There was just so many um, aspects to it that I I didn't realize how susceptible I was Um, and that my theology – I was struggling for that to become my biography. Can I really trust Jesus? Do I really believe that he does choose to heal when it glorifies him? And there are times, though, for our good and for reasons we cannot understand, he heals very differently. So realizing that my belief didn't always translate to faith, and it became a journey of faith. And it's a journey that's not over. You know, Aubrey's 30 years old. She continues to age, and I'm challenged Hmm. by this reality that I have to continually surrender her, her future, our future. What if what if she outlives me? What will happen to her? All those kinds of things are still realities in which um, I struggle and have to continue to ask um, and to continue to turn to Jesus first and not last and recognize my susceptibility to believe things or to run to things. Now, turning to Jesus may include doctors and otherwise helpers. I think there have been times that God really has touched Aubrey. The, the, there are thumb, some things she can do mm-hmm. that the doctors never thought she could do, but she's not had that miraculous healing. But the difference is putting my faith and hope in Jesus, his goodness, his love, his wisdom, his timing. He may use doctors and otherwise helpers, but am I trusting him for the outcome? That remains something I have to be aware of. Well, I know you you just mentioned that it seems like people in this situation or around this situation, it seems like their theology gets attacked. Mm-hmm, and sure. it sounds like you had a lot of wrestling match with that. And so... Based on that, I want to ask you a skeptic question. Come at this from the skeptical lens. And I'll read Mark 5, 29 to 34, the result of what happens when this bleeding woman touches the garment of Jesus. It says, immediately mm-hmm. her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Mm-hmm. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. There's a uh, the crowd again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. influencing the situation. Yeah. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, 
and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So we can celebrate this as Christians, but from a skeptical lens, Mm -hmm. I can imagine people looking at this same story and going through either chronic illnesses or, or something that's been crushing them and haven't experienced this immediate healing or even Christians at that mm-hmm. point. Um, they might come to the feet of Jesus, might have reached for him many times over and have never experienced this kind of healing that this bleeding woman uh, experiences. And they're just left asking a million questions. Like, why would God even let this happen in the first place? I thought Jesus was a healer. You know, I thought the church had different ministries of healing. I thought healing was a spiritual gift. All these different things about healing. And so Mm -hmm. what would you say to somebody that might be going through something like this, but isn't receiving healing? And where does this idea of healing fit into the church? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's definitely personal. (laughs) But I think in my counseling background, first of all, with anyone who's suffering, I'm going to want to listen primarily. Mm. I want to understand where that question is coming from. You know, semantics matter. And some of us are blaming God, but as we unpack it, um, they become psalmists and they mm. can voice this this frustration, this blame. And as they continue to voice this, like the psalmist, they, they begin to get to a, a better place. Um, a lot of cries of pain, laments, eventually lead to trust and getting back to a, a, a greater trust of who God is. Hmm. Um, crises of faith are a sacred space. So to be invited in when anyone is blaming God for hurt, um, I want to hold that really carefully. I want to hold that space well and recognize God is not in a panic mm-hmm. about it. Um, so for me, uh, again, I want to know what it's like to be them as much as possible. And this often changes how I will approach one who is blaming God. Um, I want to be prayerfully watching and waiting, knowing that Jesus is not in a hurry to correct everybody's theology and to explore why God is being blamed in this situation. And eventually want to look at what has God promised. When somebody blames God, there there's usually a promise they think he has betrayed them. So I want to get them to a place slowly, carefully, of what is it that God has promised you that he didn't deliver? And eventually together we can get to that place where Jesus promised us that in this world we are going to have trouble, but we can take heart because he's overcome the world. So what God has promised is to redeem our sorrows for all eternity. And of course, he fulfilled this mm. at an unimaginable cost in Jesus. And I love Jackie Hill Perry's quote from her book, uh, Holier Than Thou. She says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. Mm. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. Mm. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Mm-hmm. And that, that is a paradigm shift. And so from this place, both the sufferer and I, can we can begin to ask for physical healings boldly, mm. knowing that God grieves with us. He feels our pain. In fact, he feels our pain more acutely than we do, mm-hmm. and that he will never allow us to suffer needlessly. More than this, he chooses to suffer. Jesus did not have to enter into this world, but he chooses to suffer beyond anything that you or I will ever know too secure for us to overcome the world, too secure for us in eternity of no more pain, no more death, no more tears. I cannot wait to hear my daughter Aubrey talk. Mm. I cannot wait to see her dance. Mm -hmm, I cannot mm -hmm. wait to see 
Hmm. where there's no more tears. Right. And this is the one I asked for healing for, and I still have asked for healing for Aubrey. But it also speaks to where healing ministries fit in the church. Mm -hmm. Healing ministries are important, and I do believe God still miraculously heals people. Mm -hmm. But I think we're missing some of the greater miracles that I described in the message of our own hearts and prejudices and mm. fears being healed. You know, part of my rejection of my daughter was just just an ugliness in my own heart. And that being healed to me is a greater miracle right. than Aubrey being fully restored to what we would call normal. Mm -hmm. Do I still want her to be fully restored? Of course I do. But I don't want to neglect what is even more miraculous, and that's that God changes a heart. Mm. I mean, he doesn't need obedience of the body to, to heal a body. Mm -hmm. But to heal a heart, that's yeah. that's amazing to think of what God does. And so I don't want to neglect what's more miraculous, peace in the midst of unimaginable suffering, forgiveness when we're forgiving an enemy 40 times 70, 400, what is it? 70 times 70? <laughs> 70 times 70, There we yeah. go. That, thank you. Um, surrender. Back to surrender. The the courageous faith to surrender your life. Um, these, are, these are, I think, more miraculous. Wow. Not to discount healing ministry. It's still critical, mm -hmm. and it's important. And I will pray with anyone for miraculous healing, but I don't want to neglect the prayers God always answers, which is transformation. The prayers for the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of suffering we can count on him answering those prayers a hundred percent. Yeah. You at one point in this conversation said semantics matter. And I love that Jesus is so particular with his language where he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And uh, that Greek word healed. Sozo. Mm -hmm. there's that connection between salvation and healing. Mm -hmm. It's like so intertwined. And like you're saying, it's, it's almost like Jesus is like pointing us to this even deeper healing that's going on in, that's of great. course, there's one that's coming uh, in the life to come. And it the story continues by moving towards now Jairus's daughter. So it goes back and forth and back and forth. But right here, it goes back to Jairus's daughter in verse 35. And it says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And when I read that, I was like, man, how many times has our world just heard these platitudes? Mm -hmm. You know, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. You know, mm -hmm. and over time, you just hear that over and over again. And you're just like, oh, man, but I really want something to happen here. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels like you're just giving me a platitude. The one I thought of was like, I'm sending your thoughts and prayers, you know? Mm-hmm. I think the Twitter verse is getting really sick of Christians saying that, but like mm -hmm. there's something powerful there. And so I want to look at this. Don't be afraid. Just believe because semantics matter. What's going on here? Uh, don't be afraid. Just believe. It seems like this believe uh, part, this word pistuo that uh, Ryan mentioned a couple weeks ago, pistis. Uh, what is that? What is Jesus after mm -hmm. uh, in this heart transformation that may seem like a platitude, but is actually really important. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question the way you would want me to, but okay. I'm just thinking through just the process of belief versus faith. And, right. and I think faith, this is where I got tripped up even as a mom, 
well, not just with Aubrey in a million other ways, but that that faith is different than human belief. It is this mm-hmm. gift from God. It's a fruit of God's spirit. Mm-hmm. This um, pistol is God's divine persuasion. Right. Um, so with the bleeding woman, when Jesus attributed her healing to faith, he wasn't saying it was her faith. It was where she placed her faith mm-hmm. that healed her. And mm-hmm. that kind of moves us away from platitude. So it's not about something you stir up within you and go, you go, girl. It's it's where are you placing your faith? It's it's where she placed her faith that healed her. She was divinely persuaded, what the word means, by God to, to reach out and grab Jesus. And so her faith was actually not about her. It was stirred up by God, given by God, and it was placed in Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus means by if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. It's not the amount. It's it's in whom we place our faith. Mm. So this was personal for me in that I did carry the burden, the shame, as I mentioned earlier, of being told I didn't have enough faith. Mm. And that is why Aubrey was never miraculously healed physically. And in time, thankfully, um, by faith, by persuasion of God, <laughs> the lie was exposed that, mm. no, your faith is in my son and that's what pleases me. And in fact, it cre- takes greater faith to trust him when I don't heal her. And will you continue to turn to him and place your faith in him? So I don't know. Did that answer your question? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a, it's a great... Or you can cut that one. Well, no, no, we won't <laughs> cut it. But the interesting... Yeah. This interesting dynamic between like faith and belief. One belief sounds like an intellectual idea, whereas a faith seems more like you know, you have some stake in the game. Is mm-hmm. that is that what you're trying to get at here? Or I you know. I think so. Um, yeah, I, I I yeah, I think that's that's a to me. I guess I just keep coming back to even what I said earlier that you know you can believe one thing, but until you put your weight into it, until right. you really right. reach out and grab, until you're truly desperate, it 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 stops becoming about you. And what you can do. And there's a desperation and a surrender. Hmm. And that is far from a platitude. Yeah. Right? Well, well, speaking of surrender, I think that's the final question I want to ask here. Uh, Coming from verses 38 to 42, which is the conclusion of the Jairus story. And I'll read it for those of you uh, doing chores at home listening. Verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. Another thing of crowds going on Mm -hmm. with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, of course. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And so it seems like going through these two stories of Jairus and the bleeding woman, it seems like they had to surrender. And you brought that out in your message. Uh, The bleeding woman had to surrender uh, the consequences of what she was doing, Mm -hmm. whereas Jairus had to surrender um, being in control of the situation Mm because Jesus wasn't according to his timetable. And... um, I think this is such a powerful concept and um, I think people don't put the two words surrender and love mm-hmm. in the same category. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like one is one way and one is the other way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could just help us understand a little bit clearer, like 
what what does surrender have to do with love? Yeah, I think surrender is actually the test of love. Hmm. And where we get in trouble is our human definitions of love versus a biblical definition. So biblical love is to sacrificially seek the good of another. So on a human level, um, when this is the kind of love that my husband has for me, surrendering to a decision that he thinks is good good for me or good for us doesn't mean it's easy, but it's compelling. Mm-hmm. It's motivating mm-hmm. to surrender what I think to one who I know is seeking my good. Right. Um, so the extent of my surrender to to Jeff and his surrender to me, by the way, is an indication of how convinced we are that the other is sacrificially loving Mm -hmm. and wants the good of another. And so this speaks to the connection that Jesus points out in his love and our surrender. In 1 John 5, 2, he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So also in Romans, Paul talks about if he who did not spare his son, will he not also give us all things? So to surrender our suffering and our temptations to sin to God is our trust in his love for us mm. displayed on the cross. So to me, they're so inextricably linked. So I love your question. I, I don't think we think about that enough. Mm. Surrender to someone who is seeking our good is not burdensome. Mm. It's life-giving. Mm-hmm. The trick is, do we really believe <laughs> therefore our good? Right. And that goes back to the questions of blaming God that we talked about earlier. So I think they're inextricably linked and they're really a test. Surrender is actually really a test of love. And mm-hmm. and it's where wisdom comes in that there are certain people we shouldn't surrender to because mm-hmm. their 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 love, so to speak, has not proved to be a love that is sacrificially seeking the good of another. Mm-hmm. So but when we are convinced that God is for us, that he's more for us than we are for ourselves, then surrender isn't burdensome. Surrender then becomes expectation. I guess that gets back to faith. And then it goes back to faith, doesn't it? Yeah. So inextricably intertwined. Yes. Kind of like Jairus and the bleeding woman. The bleeding woman. All those connections. Man, we have made so many connections on this Going Deeper podcast. Patty, you made it through the gauntlet of the podcast. I have one more Uh personal question just for you, uh, which comes from the end of Mark 5. In verse 43, it says, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Out of all things you can end on, it's, hey, provide this woman a meal, you know? (laughs) And the picture I get, and you described this in the sermon a little bit, you said, why wouldn't he let anyone know? Well, you knew that Jesus, his future was going to uh, not be very great. Of course, it'd be great for us, but not, (laughs) it would end in the cross. But the picture I got was like a very intimate moment mm-hmm. where he brought in his disciples, mm-hmm. uh, the mother and the father, and this beautiful, miraculous yeah. miracle that's happening. And um, I guess I was thinking about just from what I know about you, I see this beautiful, intimate relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus. And so as we move from here uh, into your role at Three Crosses, mm-hmm. Um, what would you like people to know about you and, and what would you like people to see going forward from you? I think probably the first thing is that, yeah, with Jesus, when I heard the gospel and it really took root again by faith, by a persuasion of God, I never got over it. Mm -hmm. I was a late teen and I heard the 
bad news I already knew, but the good news I desperately needed to hear. And you can't say it any better than Tim Keller that I am more sinful than I ever imagined, but more loved and accepted in Christ than I ever dared to dream. And when that reality hit, because I knew about the sin part, when it when there was a possibility that I could be loved not because of what I did, but in spite of who I am, mm-hmm. um, that just was so um, – just flipped my life upside down, and I just couldn't get over it. And I still can't get over it, AJ. I still mm-hmm. can't get over by faith, he would persuade me that God would give me the gift of faith to see who Jesus is. And so I I just, I honestly can't get over it. The second piece, <laughs> as far as being here at Three Crosses, is um, I had the privilege of being part of a student-led revival on my high school campus. So I was a, one of the first of the believers, and we saw about 100, 200 kids mm-hmm. come to Christ by the time we graduated high school. So I was immersed in community. I was mm-hmm. immersed in the crowd mm-hmm. right out of the chute. Mm-hmm. And I have recognized and see and don't ever want to get over that transformation is a community project, mm-hmm. that the crowd is God's gift to me. And so I'm excited about being here at Three Crosses, the crowd (laughs) that gathers under these crosses to as we're thronging towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of us may be more on the elite side, some of us more on the desperate side. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of Mm -hmm. us are gyruses, some of us are unnamed, marginalized women, Mm -hmm. that Jesus is up to something. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to being changed Mm -hmm. by the people here and just getting to be a part of what Jesus is doing on the East Bay. So hope I never get over that he chose me and that I never get over that he chose me to be a part of his people. Mm. Well, Patty, we're really excited for you and uh, a massive welcome from our Going Deeper listeners. And hopefully this isn't the last time we have you on the podcast. So well, Patty, thank thanks you. so much for joining thank us. You. Thank you for your grace. Thank <laughs> you.